Okay. Thanks everyone for hanging in. I know it's been a long day, but um, last and certainly not least, we have Dr. Christy Marks from Weill Cornell uh, College of Medicine in New York. Christy is the Associate Director of the Fellowship Program in Infectious Disease at Cornell. She's an expert in HIV and hepatitis C, and you're in for a real treat to end the day today because I know personally I can barely pronounce all of the hepatitis C agents, much less remember all the drug-drug interactions and how to use them, and Christy really lays it all plain in a beautiful way. So Thank you're in you. for a treat here. Thanks, Christy. Thank you all for sticking with me. I like to say that these um, hep C medications are payback for the HIV providers who've been rattling off names of drugs and generics and brands and confusing everybody else. So now there's something new to learn. And um, I just wanted to start out, these are my disclosures, um, asking people how many of you are treating hepatitis C right now, treating your patients? Okay, good. And um, so I hope I convince, can convince the rest of you to, that this is um, something to, that you can certainly take on. Now, there is no better time than right now. It's never been easier. It's never been uh, more effective. So we're gonna talk about the regimens. We're gonna focus on initial treatment because I don't really have time to talk about um, retreatment, but there are some great um, um, new options for retreatment as well. So if in the question and answer period, if anyone has a question on that, we can talk about that. I'm gonna talk about when to do resistance testing and then talk about um, treatment as prevention for he of hep C for HIV-infected MSM, some new data. So which of the following would not be recommended for initial treatment of an HIV-infected patient with hepatitis C genotype 1A and no cirrhosis? We're gonna jump right into a question. So which one wouldn't you use? Um, I'm going to kind of shorten the names of these as I go through. Sofelvox for eight weeks, Sofvel for 12 weeks, Sofelidipasvir for 12 weeks. I'm going to call Glicepervir Pabrantasvir, GP for short, and Elbasvir Grisepervir for 12 weeks. Or both one and four would not be appropriate because you don't want to use eight-week regimens in the setting of HIV. So I threw all the names out there. So for those of you uh, who aren't as familiar with them, we'll get, out, get them all out there. Okay, so, um, okay, so people had heard in the past you don't want to use eight-week regimens for HIV, and that was true uh, with cefosfavir lidipasvir. It's not recommended in the guidelines. But there are, is a regimen now when there's no cirrhosis that we can use for eight weeks, and that's the GP regimen. So the one that we, the uh, incorrect answer was actually the first one, the Sofilvox for eight weeks. That's one of those regimens I talked about that we use for retreatment. It's not recommended for initial treatment, and I'll show you why in, in the talk. So we reserve that one for retreatment, and when we use it for retreatment, we use it for a full 12 weeks. So the others are all valid options and um, good options. So today I'm gonna um, kind of focus on, on recommendations that are from the guidelines, um, that are from the IDSA ASLD guidelines, shown there on the left. Yeah, oh, it's always. Is it projecting this that way? Shown on the left and then on the right, there's also guidelines from EASL. Um, the, the guidelines, if you haven't seen them, the IDSA, ASLD ones are updated in real time. Um, anytime a new regimen comes out or kind of, um, they, we, we work really hard to keep them up to date. I actually sit on, on that committee. So 
Uh, and one of the first things I just want to get out there is that treating HIV, treating patients who have hepatitis C and have HIV is now pretty much the same as treating people who just have chronic hepatitis C. So if you want to take this on in your HIV-infected patients, you could also take it on in hep C mono-infected patients. It's essentially the same medications. Um, just with HIV, we have to worry a little bit more about drug-drug interactions, but everyone here is so used to doing that, that's not a problem. So what are these medications? And you know, we brought them up in that first question, but I kind of want to break it down into the drug classes for you, the, those of you who might not be familiar. Um, but they are very similar to the HIV drugs. So you kind of have all the terminology down already. There's protease inhibitors. Um, there's polymerase inhibitors, both nukes and non-nukes. And then there's this other drug class called NS5A inhibitors. And so I'm going to tell you my super secret way of rem re uh, remembering these names, because there is actually a system. And if you've heard me talk before, people always say this is the only thing they remember of my lecture, is how to remember these drug names. So, um, so we'll... Get it out there. So for anything that's a protease inhibitor, it ends in Prevure, and you can remember this because of they both have PR in them. So all the Previurs are protease inhibitors. The Bouviers um, are either the nukes or non-nukes, so you can't tell which of the two it is by that name. And I remember Bouvier kind of sounds like base pair, which is kind of important when it comes to DNA and RNA. That's kind of a loose association. The um, Asviers are the NS5A inhibitors, and I remember that AS looks like 5A backwards. So there you have it, super scientific, but it works. So um, then we put them together in combinations, just like for HIV, and this is the approved combinations that are available shown here. And uh, think of it similar to HIV in that we ha there's both nuke sparing um, and non-nuke sparing regimens. So we saw the no nukes uh, album cover. So the same can apply to hep C. Right now, there's only one available nucleoside uh, analog, and that is sofosbuvir. So sofosbuvir I call the tenofovir for hep C. There's a lot of things similar about it. It's got a very high barrier to resistance. It's also renally cleared. So we, uh, it's not recommended to use um, sofosbuvir when there's an EGFR below 30. So for that reason, the most common situation I'll need to use a nuke sparing regimen for hep C is because of renal insufficiency. But there's other reasons, too. There could be some drug-drug interactions, uh, maybe have to do with duration. And of course, with hep C medications, it just always comes down to what will insurance actually pay for, sometimes determines which regimen you'll use. So kind of similar, another parallel to HIV there. So um, there's sort of a minimum number of things you need to know pre-treatment. Hep C genotype has been an important one, although I will say it's getting less important because I'll tell you about the two pan-genotypic regimens that are available now. So if you use one of those, theoretically, you might not need to know the genotype. Uh, one to, sometimes we'll have to check resistance mutations and check for resistance mutations, and I'll tell you about that too. Uh, it's very important, and I can't emphasize this enough, to stage fibrosis. And what I mean by that is the real question is, do they have advanced fibrosis or not? It's kind of a yes or no question because if they do, you need to do uh, liver disease management. You need to make sure it's not decompensated by checking for ascites encephalopathy. You want to avoid hep C protease inhibitors in that situation because they could be hepatotoxic. Um, you also need to do liver cancer screening and look for varices. So those are some things that you certainly don't want to miss. And it's pretty easy these days to check for 
cirrhosis or not. You can do uh, laboratory tests or you can do transient elastography, which is FibroScan. And many radiology centers, even if you don't have that in your office, you can send people to them. Sometimes they can get a sonogram and a FibroScan at the same time. Um, and you, know, you can get the information without necessarily doing the test yourself, although many offices have invested in these machines to be able to do it right on site. Um, and then imaging, of course, helps, and I get a baseline sonogram on everybody I'm treating, because if you see cirrhosis there, you know they have cirrhosis, although it's not sensitive enough to be the only method you use. Um, and then you want to know about prior hep C treatment, because that may affect what you give them. You need to know about the medications to check for drug interactions, um, comorbidities. Uh, we mentioned why renal function is important already. Very importantly, so, uh, substance use should not be a reason not to treat people, neither alcohol or injection drugs, drug use. We have good data now saying that both groups can adhere to treatment and have cure rates that are not impacted um, when, you know, when in studies of giving patients in that situation medications. So it works very well, and you can argue particularly for people who have alcoholic liver disease that they probably need the treatment more than anyone. They have two liver diseases, and so if you can impact one of them, you certainly should. Um, and then uh, childbearing potential is important. Um, ribavirin is a teratogen. Luckily, we don't use ribavirin in any of the first-line treatments anymore, so kind of that's no longer a problem. And uh, there's this helpline available. If you're struggling, you can always email me. This I uh, showed this at a national meeting once, and then someone called, and they told them it was for New Yorkers only, or New York and New Jersey only. So I now tell people just feign a Brooklyn accent when you call, and you should be fine. Just say forget about it a lot, and you know. So um, these are the drugs uh, that are approved for initial treatment, and. What I want to emphasize is there's now some that are pan-genotypic. If you kind of go over all the way to the right, those are the two available pan-genotypic options. And then we have some, we're pretty much only using the ones towards the right side of the screen at this point. But we have some that are also uh, effective against genotypes 1, 4, 5, and 6, but not 2 and 3. So just to kind of show you in text form, these are, um, this is what's approved for genotype 1B. Genotype 1B is of the genotype 1s, the easier to treat. There's four available regimens. All of them work amazingly, and uh, you can see there's some eight-week and some 12-week options. So why are things crossed out on this slide? Um, the reason things are crossed out is because these are changes that have been made to the guidelines in the past year. I just kind of want to show you what's changed, how hep C uh, treatment is evolving. So we've kind of eliminated certain options of sort of the recommended, and maybe they're now an alternative because they may have the more difficult to prescribe or, or tolerate or um, require ribavirin, things like that. There's different reasons that they were sort of taken off the recommended. But there's four remaining, and you can see that none of them have ribavirin. Um, the one that's in bold is the regimen that was approved in the last year. So I'll talk a little bit more about that, because you may not be as familiar with that as the others. So uh, for genotype 1A, same as genotype 1B, there's just one little difference, which I put in red. If you are using elbasvir grisepravir, which you may use particularly in the set of renal, setting of renal insufficiency, this is another drug that can be used in uh, renal insufficiency, you uh, have to check for NS5A resistance. And that is because, as I'll show you here, these NS5A resistance mutations are pretty common even in people who've never had any treatment, 10 to 15% of patients, their hep C virus will have these mutations at baseline. 
Um, and the significance of them does depend on the regimen. So we know that when you use Grisepravir albasvir for genotype 1A, the cure rates are much lower if, if some of these mutations are present. So that's a setting where you would actually want to check for the resistance if you're planning to use that and use something else if, if, if they were detected. Or you could, your other option is to extend the treatment and add in some ribavirin. But I think in general, most people would just use another regimen. So um, to talk a little bit about glucopravir probrantosvir, which is the newest, like I said, regimen, this has been studied in many populations, treatment naive, treatment experienced, renal, um, and HIV-infected patients. It's a co-formulated regimen, it, but it's three pills a day. So the other ones, um, in general, are one pill a day co-formulated. This one is three pills a day and should be taken with food. It is pangenotypic, so good for any of those genotypes we talked about. Um, it has some... Uh, activity against resistance mutations that can be problems with some of the other regimens. So this is not a regimen that you have to check baseline resistance for. There is negligible renal excretion, so it can be used in patients who are on dialysis, and I'll show you that data, or have um, renal insufficiency. It does have a protease inhibitor, so as I mentioned, any of these regimens with a protease inhibitor, you don't want to use in patients with decompensated liver disease. But those are probably patients we'd in general be referring on to a hepatologist or a transplant center anyway, but if you're in the situation where you are treating them, you should um, avoid protease inhibitors. It does have interactions with acid-suppressing medicines, meaning that they um, lower, um, can lower the absorption of this drug, but it, in this um, clinical trials, it actually didn't seem to have really have an impact on how uh, the regimen responded. So there isn't, um, in general, you would kind of want to use the lowest dose that you could while, you, while treating patients with GP, but you can use acid-suppressing drugs if you need to. So here's the data for how it worked. Um, it was studied for both eight and 12 weeks in patients without cirrhosis, and you can see in blue is the eight weeks, and it's uh, equivalent to the 12 weeks kind of across the board for all the different genotypes. So that's why it got this recommended to use, be used for eight weeks for patients without cirrhosis, 12 weeks for patients with cirrhosis. And um, here's the data for cirrhosis. Again, uh, looks very good. Uh, here's the data from HIV. In the HIV study, they actually studied it the way it ended up being approved to give eight weeks for uh, no cirrhosis, 12 weeks for cirrhosis. And you can see everybody but one patient was cured. And that was a genotype 3 patient. It'll kind of, we'll talk at the end about genotype 3 and cirrhosis. That's one setting where, uh, you know, there's, I think it's still, things haven't been 100% optimized yet still have some people who don't respond to treatment in that setting. Here's the renal impairment data. Um, so you can say, again, very high cure rates, an option for renal disease. The other option I mentioned before was Elbisvir Grisepravir. That's the other regimen that you can use for patients who have uh, low creatinine clearance or end-stage renal disease. So two good options there. The other pangenotypic regimen, since I mentioned there too, is the phosphopyr valpatosvir, and that's also been studied in HIV hep C co-infected patients. It's been around a little longer. It's um, known as um, Efclusa. I'm just going to say the brand names briefly because I think some people may know them. So the GP is Mavira, and the uh, phosphopyr valpatosvir is Efclusa. So those, um, and, and it was studied in HIV co-infection and excellent cure rates. Again, pangenotypic can't be used, remember, because it has cefosivir, can't use it with very low uh, creatinine clearances. Um, I'm actually going to skip this. Oh, sorry. This is the um, slide showing you why that this was the incorrect answer for that first question I asked. Why not soft, soft Velvox for eight weeks? 
they you know, did this study to say, well, how can we shorten hep C treatment? Can we add in a third drug? And in general, it worked pretty well, except for you see where the red square is there. That was for genotype 1A patients. There was a higher relapse rate in those genotype 1A patients who got this Sofvel vox for eight weeks compared to Sofvel for 12 weeks. In addition, adding in the voxaleprevir uh, adds a little bit of GI um, side effects. And um, so it, it's, it's not something that should be used for initial treatment. It is a great retreatment option, like I said, for people who uh, these regimens don't work for, the occasional rare person. So moving on to genotype 2, uh, these are the two pangenotypic regimens. Remember, for the GP, it's eight weeks for no cirrhosis, 12 weeks for cirrhosis. For Sofvel, it's 12 weeks regardless of cirrhosis status. So we have great options now for genotype 2. Uh, it was one of the situations where as of last year, I was still having trouble treating people where genotype 2 patients on dialysis. There's now an amazing option for them. So, so let's talk about the phosphorvelpatosphere in a patient with genotype 2 and renal insufficiency, who's also re receiving tenofovir, FDC, darunavir, ritonavir, um, as his HIV regimen. Which of the following should you do? Do you need to change darunavir from BID to QD for this patient before giving him softvel? change tenofovir to TAF, change darunavir, ritonavir to efavirenz, or um, no, do no ARV adjustments are needed here. Which of the following would you do? I think this was talked about a little bit in the um, other session as well. But the, you know, in the setting of a boosted um, PI, tenofovir levels can raise, and then when you add in velpatosphere, they can raise even further. So this is the correct answer. To change tenofovir to TAF would be a way to deal with that. Um, I don't think just lowering the amount of booster would be enough to kind of. That wouldn't be the, the best answer, and I think other people didn't think so. So I do think there is an um, adjustment needed um, when we use that three combination. I think you could argue in a person with that creatinine clearance, you may want to just switch to TAF anyway. So um, the guidelines talk about this. And um, so importantly, efavirenz and valpatosphere should not be used together. That's another reason that was um, a wrong answer, because the levels of valpatosphere um, become very low, and it would uh, predispose to the uh, hep C regimen not working. Um, but TAF is a great alternative. It actually solved a lot of the drug interaction problems that I used to see while treating hep C just by being able to switch tenofovir to TAF. So, and this was just uh, showing you how when you have, uh, this is tenofovir levels in the presence of lidiposphere, sofosphere in this case. So lidiposphere and valpatosphere have very similar effects on tenofovir. Um, and a boosted PI, you can kind of end up outside of that therapeutic winter window where you want to be for tenofovir, um, which may not, you know, in studies, I mean, people argue, well, hep C treatment's only 12 weeks, and in a lot of the studies, you get away with it, but um, in someone who has abnormal 
creatinine. I don't think there's any reason to really take that risk if we have something safer we can put them on. So this is just a summary of what the guidelines say. I'm not going to go through that in detail, but just for you to know it's there if you need help with that. And this is also showing in the guidelines there are drug um, interaction tables for HIV medications that are kept very up-to-date. Bactecarivir is being added um, as we speak. And they're um, just showing you in red things that you probably shouldn't use together. Yellow may need increased monitoring, so that's why the darunavir with velpatosphere in this case has the yellow, because you're going to need to monitor tenofovir levels if you use that together. And then in green is really no interactions. Another incredibly useful website is this Liverpool Drug Interaction website. Um, and you can just select the, uh, what I often do is we'll select all the hep C regimens I'm thinking about, um, and then put in the patient's medications in the table, on the column to the right. And then it spits out the potential interactions, and I can choose which hep C regimen didn't have any interactions. Um, and these are the main drug classes that you really need to work watch out for. The acid-reducing drugs are very common to have interactions with hep C meds, of course, ARVs, anti-epileptics or others. Amiodarone should not be used with sofosfavir, it can cause heart block. And then lipid-lowering drugs um, can sometimes have interactions, but usually can, you can make an adjustment to get around. So this website's incredibly helpful. And this um, was just showing with, I did that with omeprazole and all the regimens. And if you click on those boxes, it will actually tell you the specific interactions so you can uh, know how, what to do about it. And this is a study that we presented at CROI as a poster that just showed when you did make those adjustments in HIV regimens to be able to treat the hep C, people didn't lose their HIV virologic control. Um, so there was no people who we had to switch versus not, there was no increase incidence, increased yeah, incidence of HIV treatment failure. Okay, now we'll talk about Geno3. So which of the following is recommended for initial treatment of hep C genotype 3 in a patient with cirrhosis? Can we use sofosfavir, lidipasvir for 12 weeks, safel for 12 weeks, elmasvir, grazeprevir for 12 weeks, or GP for eight weeks? Which is recommended? Geno3 cirrhosis. Okay, let's see. Okay, so we have some variability here. So, first of all, Geno3, we need to use a pan-genotypic regimen, okay? So, Sofalodiposphere and Elbisvir Grisepravir are incorrect because they don't cover genotype 3. So sofalpatosvir or GP were the two possible choices, and I think most of you correctly picked up on that. For cirrhosis, you need to use the GP for 12 weeks. So for cirrhosis, you can't get away with those eight-week regimens. has to be 12 weeks. So the correct answer was sofosfavir velpatosvir for 12 weeks. So these are the possible regimens for genotype 3, and really the one really hard-to-treat group that remains is genotype 3 with cirrhosis. They are trickier to treat. And for that reason, in the guidelines, they do recommend checking for resistance mutations because those are the people who um, are most, people who have resistance and have cirrhosis and have genotype 3 are the most likely to have the treatment not work. And I'll show you that a little bit. So for that case, you'd probably want to add in ribavirin or consider using Sofovox, although it's not approved for that indication. So the... Um, 
So here's the data with GP in, in treatment-naive patients without cirrhosis. So I want to spend a little time on GP and genotype 3. So um, it, it was compared to sofosbuvir decladesvir, which was the best treatment available for genotype 3 at that time, and it works very well for patients who don't have cirrhosis. And it was comparable in performance, um, non-inferior, for patients who did not have cirrhosis. It was looked at um, for... Uh, for the eight-week arm, I want to, what I want to show you is, uh, sorry, let me go back. So you can see in the two blue, the blue and the green is the GP for either 12 weeks or eight weeks. So eight weeks is what's approved, but it did kind of come out that there were um, more, of the treatment failures for, who, for genotype three for eight weeks, uh, A30K, this mutation that hadn't previously really been a big player, remember I said Y93H is the one we kind of look for with her genotype 3, there were more of the, the failures seemed to be enriched for that mutation. Let me show you that a different way because I made that more confusing than it had to be. In that red box, um, you can see the patients of eight weeks, if they had the A30K, which was only 18 of the patients in this pretty large study, for only 14 of them were cured. So that was a cure rate of 78% compared to kind of the 95% overall. So it's uncertain whether this A30K, whether this was kind of just a fluke, but the sense is this might be a problem. But I think we just need more data to understand how big of a problem it is and whether we should check for it at baseline and do something different. Well, what could you do different? You might extend the treatment. So the 12-week arm cure rate was 93%. That isn't what the FDA recommended, I think just because the numbers are so small and you know one patient either way would kind of change this, but I think it's something to look out for as we get more data with this regimen. For the cirrhotic group, there was only one patient who had this mutation and they were cured, so it really wasn't enough to say. So I think that's something to just kind of pay attention. In the genotype three with cirrhosis study, everybody got 12 weeks and they studied it both with and without ribavirin and everyone was cured. So in the end, the FDA didn't say ribavirin is necessary and it was uh, approved to use for 12 weeks. So I think more data to come on GP and kind of from real world, real world cohorts um, you know, in the future. In terms of sofosbuvir valpatosphere, that's the one I, where it's recommended to check for that Y93H if there's cirrhosis. And that is shown because of um, this data here, which kind of shows you if you have that Y93H mutation at, at baseline, the cure rate overall was 84%. And most of that, the people who weren't cured were cirrhotic. So I do definitely think in sofosbuvir valpatosphere, you should, and, and you have a patient with genotype 3 and cirrhosis, you should check for that mutation. And if they can tolerate ribavirin, add it in. 84% is not a terrible cure rate, so it's not like I wouldn't treat them if I couldn't use ribavirin. But if you can use ribavirin and they can tolerate it, I would add it in. Um, and I'm going to skip that one for the sake of time. So let's talk a little bit about treatment as prevention. So the um, graph on the left, the figure on the left, shows what happened in the Netherlands when they gave unrestricted access to hep C treatment. So basically, there was a big campaign to try and treat everybody. Um, there was, you know, no prior authorizations needed. Everybody who want, who needed to be treatment could be treated. And what they found was during that period of expanding access to hep C treatment in HIV-infected MSM, the incidence of acute hep C and HIV-infected MSM went down. So it seemed like a treatment as prevention effect. Um, a, a, so that was presented at last year's CROI, and so that in this year's CROI, the Swiss 
HCV3, HCV, I have trouble saying that one, um, study was presented, and this was their wording, not mine, the systematic treatment of HCV spreaders. I think that's a very weird way to say that. Um, but what they found was they, again, they took on uh, a very kind of, um, ex I think, exciting, you know, concept of treating everybody who's in the Swiss HIV cohort study, which happens to, which they estimate is 75% of the HIV infected MSM in their country are in this cohort. So they have a very high enrollment into this cohort. And they treat, they tested everyone during this kind of phase A, which was, um, you know, a less than one year period, and tested everyone for hep C and they treated everyone um, who had hep C. They provided the medication and treated them I think they all got Elbisvir Grisoprevir unless they were um, genotype three, and then and then they retested everyone and looked for, you know, how many people did they cure and uh, what was the incidence. And so they saw comparing phase A and phase C. Again, they their prevalence obviously went down because they treated everyone, and then their incidence went down as well. So I think this is really encouraging that treatment as prevention can work. Now. What's shocking, even more shocking, I think, is that the total number in the country was 147 people. We probably have more than that in my clinic, right? But, but you know, it can be done. And I think if there's, um, we're fortunate in 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 um, treating HIV-infected MSM that they're getting regular testing, and we detect the cases, and so we can treat them early and kind of hope to to uh, prevent spread of Hep C. So. I think it's a great place to start in the sort of hep C elimination campaign. Um, the other study I thought was interesting at CROI had to do with um, acute hep C. And so the guidelines currently say if, if you detect acute hep C to give up to 12 weeks or even up to six months to allow for spontaneous resolution prior to treating it, unless there's you know, an indication to kind of treat right away. And you know the problem with that is kind of was, was talked about with HIV. During that time, someone's viremic. They obviously were engaging in high-risk behavior. They just contracted Hep C, and you know chances are that they may be putting other people at risk. Um, and you may also lose them to follow up if you say come back in six months or whatever. Like you have someone there, and you can do something about it right then. Why not? Well, the cost is the main reason why not. So what this um, probe C study looked at was there is there another predictor of who will spontaneously resolve? So overall, in their acute Hep C cohort, they only had a 12% spontaneous clearance rate. So most people won't spontaneously clear. But what they did see is that if you did a viral load and then rechecked it at week four, if they didn't have a two-log drop, they weren't going to spontaneously resolve. So that was sort of a potential criteria that I think could be used to decide who to treat and who not. And it would at least shorten from 12 weeks to six months to four weeks if you wanted to use that. Or we could just decide, you know, treat everyone um, right, right then. And um, several studies have now looked at shortened course treatment for acute hep C. And so anywhere from six to eight weeks. And I think what in general these um, studies have in common is that the people who are at most risk of it not working are people with high baseline viral loads. But for people um, with low baseline viral loads, you can generally get away with it. And in the ACTG 5327 study, actually everyone was cured, even those with high viral loads, by using sofosphere lidiposphere for eight weeks. So I think um, probably for most patients with acute hep C, you could use an eight-week regimen and, and cure them. 
So I just want to summarize by saying it's time we can cure everyone with hep C. There's um, been remarkable advances, including being able to treat every genotype, to be able to treat patients on dialysis, and that our cure rates in um, HIV patients are similar, if not the same, as mono-infection. There are drug interaction issues, but there are lots of valuable resources that are available online. You can manage these very quickly at the time you're seeing the patient. You do need to do resistance testing in a couple situations, but with, um, I think there's kind of strategies I can think of in development where we use pangenotypic regimens and uh, that may not actually be necessary and we could streamline things a little bit. And just to remember that successful treatment really prevents cirrhosis and end-stage liver disease, so we want to treat people early. We don't want to wait till they get those things to treat them, and it prevents liver cancer, and it also appears to prevent trans, um, spread of HCV. And don't forget that after someone's cured, liver disease management doesn't stop there, particularly for cirrhotics. But even for people who didn't have cirrhosis. You want to make sure their liver tests normalize because if they don't, they have another liver disease and you need to figure out what that is. So thank you very much. I think we have time for questions. Do I finish on time? I think we're finishing early. Great. Thank you, Christy. I think we have some questions from the okay. group. Um, just before we jump into those, could you sort of update us into what the current thinking is about rates of hepatocellular carcinoma and DAA-treated patients sort of persisting and this issue of hep B reactivation? Sure. So the hep B reactivation, um, you know, there were, some, there were some cases reported that in people who start hep C treatment, uh, hep B actually reactivated. So as you know, we have patients who may have both infections. Some may be surface antigen positive. Some may be only core antibody positive. But hep B is like HIV. It's never cured. Either the immune system can control it or uh, the, you know, you're on a medication which controls it. So most of our patients are on, or many of them are on tenofovir or TAF or even FTC or 3TC. So we have, to, we don't have to worry about reactivation as much as when you're treating hep C mono-infected patients. But for patients who are surface antigen positive, they're at the highest risk of it reactivating. And so if you um, in the first several weeks of treating hep C, when you bring that viral load down, somehow the liver kind of realizes that and hep B kind of, you know, there's different theories, cytokines and whatnot, but that hep B can reactivate. So if you have a person who's surface antigen positive but isn't on hep B treatment, maybe because their viral load's not detectable, that's someone you want to monitor closely for reactivation. If they're only core antibody positive, uh, the chance of reactivating is much less than like when you give them rituximab or something. But if they developed liver test elevations, then you would certainly consider hep B in the differential and test for that. And then HCC, yeah, so curing hep C doesn't make HCC risk go away. Uh, it doesn't make it worse. I mean, there was some early data that suggested maybe somehow that was, uh, could, could actually, you know, cause HCC or, or let HCC emerge. I think that's been completely debunked. But patients who have cirrhosis or advanced fibrosis and hep C, even when you take away the hep C, they still have the liver disease and they need to be screened for cancer. You will find cancers after you cure people. It's very you know sad because you're just like so happy you just cured their hep C. And, but, um, but that's why it's important to cure people as early as you can, not wait until they get advanced disease. Great, thank you. Um, 
Questions from the audience include, um, there are some patients with a child Pew score of seven based on synthetic function, but not encephalopathy or ascites. Have you ever used protease inhibitors in these patients? Uh, I think it's important. I mean, the child Pew score is, you know, a calculator that um, you should use, but you should also think about why are, why is the albumin low, or if you have some other explanation that you don't think is liver disease, you know, maybe then I would, but in general, I think you have an option that's not a protease inhibitor, so why not use one? If you had to, um, you know, I think you do it carefully, um, but if you can avoid it, like in a retreatment scenario, there's no option that doesn't have a protease inhibitor, so someone with very um, low, you know, mildly decompensated disease, I would probably refer, but I think you could, they would ultimately end up getting treated and monitored closely. So, but it's just important to remember, you know, I think it's some of the cirrhotics we see, they're kind of, if the bile is a little up or the albumin's a little down, just don't use a protease inhibitor in those patients. I would err on the side of caution. Especially if you have other options. Yeah, you have other options. Um, do you have thoughts on uh, screening for resistance-associated variants in cirrhotics uh, uh, versus non-cirrhotics, especially genotype 3? Yeah, so that's kind of what I talked about, that if you're going to use sofosbuvir-valpatasvir for genotype 3 cirrhotics, you, you should um, check for the resistance mutations, and if, if it's a person who you can add ribavirin in for, because... Uh, adding ribavirin, we think, would get you a little bit better curate. It hasn't been studied in some kind of, you know, controlled fashion, but it's sort of based on expert opinion and what we've seen with other regimens. We know adding ribavirin can help prevent relapses, so we do it. And then the follow-up to that is, so if you have a cirrhotic genotype 3 with 28, 30, and 93, <laughs> why not use Sofvel Vox? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's, um, it's, not approved, but if you can get it, certainly I think it's reasonable. And that the guidelines actually say that. They say either add in some ribavirin or use Sofvelvox. What we know from using Sofvelvox in that situation is um, there were still some failures. I mean, Gina 3 cirrhotics with a lot of mutations are just tough, tough cookies to treat. But um, when they fail, they didn't have the resistance mutations like emerging. So maybe, you know, maybe it would be better. Um, and someone had noted that there was a publication that they had seen um, that in HIV-infected individuals with newly diagnosed hep C, there was a 50% uh, uh, SVR rate without treatment. So, you know, depending on how someone establishes an acute hep C cohort, sometimes you'll see higher spontaneous resolution rates. But kind of if you kind of look at overarching lots and lots of studies, I think it's probably somewhere between... 15, I think it's around 15%. At the highest, I would say it's a 25% spontaneous resolution rate. But a lot of things, you know, there some things depend on genetics. If you have this um, IL-28B mutation, you're more likely to spontaneous re resolve. So if you're looking at like a Finnish cohort or something where they have high rates of that mutation, maybe there's higher cure rates. I don't know. I mean, spontaneous resolution rates. But in general, I think, you know, you can hope for about a 15% chance of someone spontaneously resolving. Pepsi. Great. Additional questions for Christy. Yes. Let me get you the microphone so people can hear your question. For a co-infected patient with HIV and HCV, and for the patient who is still viremic with mm -hmm. HIV, do you recommend? And it's not. And it's chronic HCV. Do you recommend 
achieving full HIV suppression before starting HCV treatment? That's a great question. So how I approach you know, patients who have HIV and hep C and their HIV isn't yet controlled is if HIV is sort of the priority infection, if they have very low CD4 counts um, or some other reason their HIV really needs to be controlled, I do think people should prioritize that and focus their energy on that. And um, But if, you know, if they're not on medications, say, and they're not interested in treating their HIV at that moment, some people do want hep C treatment. And I think, you know, in that case, I certainly would treat the hep C. So it's a, a bit of an individualized decision, but, um, you know, it, um, there are people who, for whatever reason, won't take their HIV medicines, but are very motivated to treat their hep C, and it's a 12-week duration and can be perfectly adherent to it. So it's kind of a case-by-case -case decision. But I do try to just emphasize to the patient, if they have low CD4 counts, how much more urgent the HIV treatment is than the hep C. We can wait a few months and nothing bad's gonna happen. Yeah, so I, I had a question on how you <clears throat> determine uh, fibrosis in your patients, either with mono-infected hepatitis C or yeah. co-infected. That is, we have the serologic tests, including the fibrosure, mm -hmm. Uh, the Avery score and so forth, and we yeah. have the fibro scan. And um, what I have noted, and some of this is anecdotal, and other but other uh, providers have noted the same thing. Um, as far as the fibro sure supposedly being accurate in F0, F1, and F4, uh, noting that often F4 may be overstated in comparison with other data, and even the fibro scan F4 may be overstated. And that in in evaluating for hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, perhaps we're uh, in sending too many patients who might be F3s for um, uh, ultrasounds every six months to screen because they're F3s, um, which may not be, which is better to I guess over uh, uh, test for that. Yeah. in uh, mishepatocellular uh, carcinoma, but I was wondering uh, if you, uh, what your approach was. Right, so I, I usually rely on, you know, sort of three objective assessments. So I will do just what I see on physical exam, right, because if there's stigmata of cirrhosis, um, I take that into account. So do they have pulmonary erythema, spider angiomata? Um, they look on the shoulders, too, because that's a common place to get them. Now, people can have those things and not have cirrhosis, but if they're present, you know, my, like, I'm a little more concerned. And then they're same. I kind of count the sonogram into that pool, too. And then I use a non-invasive test um, or blood test, like either the APRI or the, the uh, fibrosure, one or the other, whichever one kind of I feel like using. So if the platelets are low, you can kind of know the APRI is going to be off, right? You can almost kind of do some of this without these tests. But the um, if I'm sending the fiber, sure, you have to think about the reasons it might be falsely wrong, which would the main one might be hemolysis or things that affect bilirubin. So atazanavir use, for instance. But so I'll kind of use, like, I kind of look at the whole picture. I do two different assessments, so either fiber scan or fiber sure. The, and the physical exam, and I see if kind of they're all lining up, and I go with the most conservative, because in this case, you don't want to miss uh, liver cancer, and so if some, one of them is saying cirrhosis, unless I have some explanation for why 
it's sort of wrong. I, I do abide by it. I think over time we'll see, we will learn, because people are certainly studying this, which people we can stop doing liver cancer screening on. And that will be very helpful because we are probably, I mean, we're, we're at the same time over screening and under screening, right? Some people aren't getting any screening who really should be getting it. And then we're screening people who are probably pretty low risk. But I think until we know what criteria we can use, the, um, there was one recommendation out there by the AGA, which is like the American Gastro Association or something, where they said if you did a repeat fibro scan that was below a certain threshold, you could not screen for liver cancer. But I think that's very controversial, and I don't recommend that. I think, but I think something like that will come in the future. People will find some criteria to say this person's out of the window of risk. Thank you. Going once, hey. going We're twice. Early. So exciting! Thank you, Christy. All right, so that brings us to the end of our day. I want to thank everyone for staying and being such great participants.